Good morning, everybody. The Bible reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, and it's on page 1178 of the Bibles that you've been given as you came in. Page 1178, Philippians chapter 1, and starting at verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you can share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you might be able to discern what's best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's already happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Jesus Christ will abound on account of me. Now, we're going to turn over to Revelation chapter 22. And that's on page 1253, 1253, Revelation chapter 22, and it starts at verse 1. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign for ever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister. We have newish this morning, newish morning tea, and so I'll I'll be at that at this morning. So I do encourage you to come along if you haven't been to one yet. It's fairly sh- short, like half an hour or something, but the food's better than the normal morning tea. So it's good. Uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts and minds this morning uh, and make us more like the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, today we uh, finished this series we've been, uh, we've been immersed in for the last uh, four weeks uh, for, for this month of May on work rest and retirement and uh, this morning we talk about the concept of retirement if you're uh, well past or well before retirement don't worry there's plenty that's of challenge and worth for us Um, as we do that though I've just got a, a video for us to watch let's see if it works sorry I fiddled with it for the previous service so great ad it's well designed because even the moment you see the ad roll the individuals tell you something isn't it about what they're probably advertising and I love grand grandpa's uh, line at the end although he looks very young to be a grandfather but anyway uh, he says you know he's asked what do they do in retirement whatever they want it reflects actually I think uh, the common understanding of retirement it's materialistic you know Graying couple in a sports car, top down, 
Uh, it's pretty individualistic as well. It's, it's an interesting take on retirement. And so the question that we have for us today as we finish this series is, uh, what does the Bible say about retirement? On one level, the Western idea of retirement has value, actually. The Bible recognises Ecclesiastes chapter 3 to every season there is a time. The Bible recognises that our life is an is a amalgamation of seasons, actually. And each season, we have limitations and opportunities unique to that time in our life. Uh, and, and so retirement fits into this understanding of seasons of our life. The challenge, though, and I think what that video reminds us of is that the Western concept of retirement is generally materialistic and generally individualistic. And so the challenge of the Western uh, mindset is that it may actually speak against what the Bible says. So what does the Bible say about retirement? Well, this is where, this is where the reflection this morning is more challenging. There isn't a verse on retirement. There isn't a, a, a section even in the Old Testament law on retirement because it didn't exist. God never mandated retirement for his people in Israel. The, the, the Levite priests, even they, when they get older, they shift to different roles, but they don't just stop being Levite priests. So there isn't a word, there isn't a, a verse, sorry, that you could refer to which will just suddenly open up the, the, uh, the, the way we're meant to think about retirement. But I think there are still principles that we can use and we can think about uh, and then we can apply to this the season of retirement which are helpful. And we, we start in the passage that Jill first read, Philippians chapter 1. You might think, oh, that doesn't really feel like a retirement passage. But this, you have to remember, is actually a, a book written by Paul towards the end of his life. Uh, not because he's getting old and going to die of old age, but because he's probably going to be uh, executed uh, as, as a result of his Christian faith. He's been in jail or he's been under house arrest for a long period of time. But see what Paul writes in, a, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. He says, his prayer is that your love may abound more and more. There's a mindset here in Paul's thinking right, about the Philippians, let alone himself, which sees continual growth and progress, progress in loving God. And so he doesn't think of, oh, my prayer is that your love May, may reach its fullness, right? that it might reach a point and then just stay there, but that it might grow and abound more and more. And that vision of life, which says that you're never really done in terms of your growth. You're never, you don't reach a point where you just put things on pause and you're in, you're in kind of maintenance mode till the end. That vision is carried through. It's found in the Old Testament too. This is Psalm 92. The psalmist says, The righteous still bear fruit in old age. They'll stay fresh and green. The righteous continue to grow, even in their old age. Now, of course, in the Psalms, fruit is spiritual fruit, spiritual fullness, a deepening understanding and knowledge and love of God. And the righteous still bear this fruit in their old age. They stay fresh and green. This is in contrast, I think, to a cultural mindset, which says as you get old, you become less capable. You have less to offer. That's the way the world might think of old people and think of age. That's one of the reasons we fear it. But the psalmist, the Bible says, oh, no, there's always capacity for growth 
There's always capacity for a deepening love for God. John Piper, who's an American preacher, he preached this. Uh, he, he wrote a he wrote a book called "Don't Waste Your Life," and it's based on a sermon he gave. He gave it to college students, but it's a, it was a very powerful sermon. He talks about the Western concept of retirement. I'm not going to quote a few. Instead, you're going to listen to it. It's a short clip here, and uh, I'll get the guys at the back maybe to play this so that I don't stuff it up. I'll read you what a tragedy is. I've got a little article here from Reader's Digest. You don't read Reader's Digest, I know that. But there is a generation who does. This is a tragedy. Title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early, February 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream. A nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement. Collecting shells. As the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. God, look at my boat. God. If you have a shell collection, that's okay. You can show it to me after. The point, of course, is not those things. It's, it's, a, it's a view, isn't it, of life and what, the, what those years after, I don't know, our 40, 50 years of paid, paid work look like and what the purpose of them is. So what shape should retirement life take? That's the question, isn't it? And as I said to you, while there isn't a a set verse that says, when you retire, do X, Y, and Z, the principles still apply. And in this passage that Paul wrote, uh, look at verses 12 to 14. If you have a Bible in front of you, you can use that. Otherwise, it's on the screen here. Look what Paul says. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. This is Paul, you remember, is in a season of limited capacity. He's, he's chained, he's under house arrest, he cannot, he's, he's a church planter, he cannot do that. 
He's confined to this one space. There's actually a lot of correlating details between his life and the life of someone in retirement. You know, as you start to find your sphere of influence, so to speak, narrowed. But he says what has happened to me is actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. You remember, we've been saying that one of the shape, the purposes of work is to glorify God. And what's extraordinary is Paul, even in this season, has the capacity to glorify God, to bring honour to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he then goes on and says, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters become confident in the Lord. We said the second purpose of work was to love our neighbour and to serve them. And Paul, even though he is here in this little house, chained up, he still has the capacity, he's in the Paris Guard, he still has the capacity to encourage his fellow, his fellow prisoners, uh, and we also know he has the capacity to uh, actually impact the Palace Guard, the, the, the people who guard over him. There's a reminder there that those twin aims of work, glorifying God and serving our neighbour, still remain relevant to us, even as we think about the season of retirement that God has given us. I read a book in preparation for this last um, instalment of this series called An Uncommon Guide to Retirement. If you're thinking about this topic, this is a great book to read. It's pretty easy to read and very practical. And out of it arrives three principles that I think are worth considering as you think about how you apply these twin aims of glorifying God and loving your neighbour to the season of retirement. The first is, look at retirement as an opportunity to cultivate your character, not just your knowledge. I think we live in a time where people say, oh, well, I'm going to take up a hobby, I'm going to do a new course, I'm going to upskill in something. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, those are not bad things. But, you know, as a retiree or in that season of retirement where you don't work as much, you actually have the opportunity to cultivate things which were harder before. You can spend more time in the Scriptures. You can spend more time in prayer. You can actually look to grow in godliness. Secondly, disciple the next generation. Don't just offer cheap childcare. We live in a, in a place where, I mean, the reality is most Young family households, both parents have to work now and grandparents regularly get, get called in or grand aunts get called in to do childcare for children. That's okay, that's fine. But raise the bar in the opportunities that you have in that moment. Some, some grandparents, I think, spend more waking hours with their grandchildren than the parents do in some households. Uh, there's, there's a partly a tragedy there of, of life and its busyness, but there's an opportunity too to disciple your children, your grandchildren, your grandaunts, your, your neighbours' children, the children here at church in the gospel. I actually think this is something that we've got better at as a church over the last two years, seeing that older generation get more involved in children's ministry and the next generation. Uh, it's great to see who's out there on a Sunday um, leading our kids' zone. It's not just parents anymore. There's a genuine opportunity, someone who's in retirement age, to disciple the next generation. And thirdly, sorry, this is a typo, it says, should say, reach the world, don't escape the world. You know, again, we have a sense in which retirement is, the, we've dealt with the world, we've dealt with all its complexities for the last 60, 70 years, 
Now it's a chance for me to get on the open road and escape it. But actually, retirement is the opportunity, a newfound opportunity to reach the world with the gospel. You have, you have newfound time, you have newfound space in your life, but you also have more, hopefully, spiritual maturity and insight into the work of the gospel. And so actually retirement is an opportunity to reach the world, not just escape it, to not just disconnect from it. I think each of those reflects in some way those principles of glorifying God and loving our neighbour in action in this season. Retirement, you see, is an extraordinary opportunity, an extraordinary opportunity to do real work still, which contrasts with a worldly conception of retirement, which is where you kind of disappear off into your own individualistic, materialistically created future. Now, the challenge with retirement, actually, is, is not just taking hold of these opportunities. See, if you're wealthy, if you have worked, if you've been blessed to have a job which has created a nest egg uh, and, and you've got a home that you own, then retirement might naturally lead towards you being individualistic and materialistic. You might be able to have the sports car uh, with the wind through your hair. But... If you don't have wealth, if you haven't managed to kind of store that up and build that up over the course of your, your working, your paid working life, retirement actually is a season of increased fear and anxiety, a sense in which what comes next? What do I do? How will I provide for myself? Who will I be with? There's a story that went through the papers about four years ago of a, um, a Chinese grandfather, 85-year-old Chinese grandfather, who put up on kind of telegraph poles in his, in his city in China this ad. The ad read this. It said, Looking for someone to adopt me. A lonely old man in his 80s. Strong-bodied, can shop, cook, and take care of himself. No chronic illness. I retired from a scientific research institute in Tianjin with a monthly pension of 6,000 RMB a month. I won't go to a nursing home. My hope is that a kind-hearted person or family will adopt me, nourish me through old age, and bury my body when I'm dead. It's pretty tragic. In fact, about three weeks after this story started to kind of filter through um, social media circles in China, the authorities visited his home and found him dead. See, retirement reveals, actually interestingly, retirement reveals why materialism and individualism are not what they're cracked up to be. You know, the, the further you go into it, you realise all the stuff I accrued, all the people I had around me, all the people I left behind, I wish they were back. It's interesting that retirement actually becomes a season that eventually reveals the, the shallowness of materialism and the unsatisfying nature of an individualistic mindset. It's a season filled with loneliness and anxiety for many people, even if it's not for you right now. And so retirement teaches us that we actually need help, that we need help. 
But interestingly, as I've reflected on the concept of time, and it's a bit easy for someone like myself who's, you know, 43, to not really think about it. It's, it's a long way away. In my season of life, life is still about accruing, you know, accruing things, accruing children, uh, accruing wealth, accruing property, accruing whatever it is, that, right? accruing relationships. And so you think, oh, well, that's something I'll deal with later. But interestingly, the Bible's challenge is that retirement and the question of it and that season is something that actually impacts all people, that it's actually something that we're all meant to be involved in and it's necessary that we play a part in. Here's what Paul says in Philippians 1.19. Further on, he says, For I know that through your prayers, God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ is what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. In other words, he's saying, because of your support, though I'm in this season of less capacity, of uncertainty, your support has held me up. We know from uh, his letters to Timothy how much he rejoices in the small gifts sent by churches thousands of kilometres away. Paul reminds us, actually, that each of us has a responsibility to see the other through whatever season of life they're in. That's part of our work, actually. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy. He says, Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, they should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family. See, retirement is not just something that we, we send people who are over 60 to deal with themselves. Old age is not something that we just consign to those for whom... the the season has arrived. It's a responsibility for each of us, and it's challenging, actually. It's challenging for, for us in a culture where our tendency might be to move older people into a nursing home or a retirement village so that our household can continue unabated. But the responsibility and the call of the, the gospel and God's people to love your neighbour in this place is to also love the older generation. Retirement is, is a question that we actually are all called to face, whether we're in the midst of it or we have many decades to go before we get to it. What is the work that we're called to do in light of this season? See, the, the biblical vision is so much better than the cultural vision of life in this season. The biblical vision is one of communal reality of of. of Older people willing to accept service and younger people willing to serve. It's, a, it's, a, it's in stark contrast to what the world paints as a pattern for life, as a pattern for life. You know, all our fears ultimately, though, are a product of what our bigger vision of life is. All our fears. My daughter, Harriet, when she was younger, we'd go on holidays and the last of the holidays... Um, she was just terrible to be around. She was very emotional, uh, got angry, burst into tears. You would think at the end of a holiday, your tank is filled up. But she was, we realised afterwards she was like this because she saw the end of the holiday coming. She's grieving the end of this little moment of, you know, family or whatever it is. And in a sense, she... She was allowing herself, unfiltered by all our kind of adult sensibilities, to express the reality of life, that it's filled with these little moments of 
of endings, of things coming to a closure. Now again, you know, as a young person, it's perhaps harder for myself to see this because my life is often things starting, new things coming into it, new seasons arriving. But this is the reality for all of us, actually. These little moments when something ends, these little moments when a relationship breaks down, these bigger moments when someone we love passes away are reminders, actually, of the finality of death. And perhaps what scares us most in retirement is that we are heading towards that impending wall of death and judgment. Perhaps that's what's most scary in that moment. And you know what? That shapes the way we work. It does. Right now, in, the, in my mid-40s, I don't realise it, but it still shapes the way I work. In my retirement, even more so. My view of the world, my bigger picture of life, ultimately shapes my work here and now. And so it is true for you as well. Paul... As I said, in Philippians, is a man shaped by the impending, impending end of his life. Right? But he knows, he knows what's coming. But his letter is a letter filled with joy, filled with optimism. His, his key line in Philippians 4 is rejoice. I say it again, rejoice always. This is his great call. And I think the reason he can have that mindset despite seeing the end of his life approaching, is, is verse 21, that beautiful verse, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's because Paul has that worldview about himself and the world he inherits, he inhabits, that he can, he can encounter his life now and what it holds with joy. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. That's an extraordinary worldview. What does he mean? Well, I, I don't have this on a screen, but if you have your Bibles in front of you, if at home you've got your Bibles in front of you, have a look with me because you see throughout that little reading which Jill brought us, Jesus Christ occupies Paul's worldview. He really shapes everything. So uh, verse 8, his affections are known in relation to Jesus Christ. Verse 11, his righteousness, his rightness with God comes through Jesus Christ. Verse 13, his chains even are understood as for Christ. See, Jesus Christ is the lens through which he's viewing every part of his experience. Verse 18, his preaching is valuable. Why? Because it brings honour to Christ. Verse 20, his sufferings allow Christ to be exalted. Verse 23, his ultimate desire is to be with Jesus Christ. For me to live is Christ is Paul's way of saying, Jesus Christ is what my whole life is about. That's what it's all about. It's what gives it shape. It's what gives it purpose. It's what gives it meaning. It's the way I understand everything which otherwise I couldn't understand. It's how I find direction and guidance when otherwise it's not possible for me to live is Christ. And of course the reason he does this is because the gospel is this extraordinary story. The story of a person who loves deeply 
and gives himself completely, as Paul Miller says. This story of Jesus Christ, who loves deeply and gives himself completely. And that worldview, that gospel, is imprinted on Paul's life. And so therefore, Paul is this person who can just love deeply and give himself completely to the very end. Because this is his worldview. But even more than that, right? It's not just for me to live is Christ, he says, but to die is gain. Because he understands that Jesus Christ is not just summed up as a man on the cross, but Jesus Christ is the man who goes to an empty tomb. And, and out of that empty tomb, he opens the gateway to life. Jesus Christ takes down the wall of death. He says, there is another, there's an alternate future for you. There is something better than you can achieve or conceive of. Pippi talked about this passage in um, Spotlight, Revelation 22. Here's what Revelation 22 says. And just listen to it as we read it, because this is the vision. This is the worldview, right? This is the doorway to life that Jesus is opening. And this is what Paul believes lies in store for him because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, Then the angel, this is John writing about his vision of the final day. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On every, each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. It's a symbolism of, of deeply fruitful work. Right? And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of nations. This is the work that genuinely loves your neighbour, that blesses the other person. No longer will there be any curse. The problem with work, which we saw in the first instalment of this series in Genesis 3, is taken away. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. This is work which is about God, which glorifies God. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. This is work that does not leave you alone, but draws you into the great family of God. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. This is work that is permanently good. This is the picture. This is what the resurrection is opening to us. This is the future. This is so far from an individualistic, materialistic hope. This is a life with work that is forever good, satisfying, worthwhile, wonderful. And this kind of work, this kind of hope, sorry, can transform your attitude to work. As I finish, let me ask you to do a little thought process with me. Imagine, God forbid, you're on death row. And uh, it comes to that moment where you get your, you get your choice of your final meal. So you, you, you order an exquisite meal and it arrives. This is the best food you, will, you have ever eaten, you will ever eat. And so you kind of do enjoy the first mouthfuls, but as you start to eat into the meal, you, it, it becomes more and more bitter, of course, doesn't it? Because you realise each mouthful is close to your last mouthful. The taste of this meal is, is sullied. Now imagine, though, 
Imagine a slightly alternate story. Before you receive your meal, you receive news that you've been pardoned. In fact, you've been vindicated, you've been proven innocent. Tomorrow you'll be released. Tomorrow you'll be brought before the cameras, declared innocent, free of all guilt. You'll be reunited with those you love. You will be able to return to a life unmarked by this season in jail. Now the meal comes to you. Now you enjoy this meal in a different way, don't you? Every mouthful is sustaining. Every mouthful is tasty. And the thing is, as you get to the end of this meal, you don't care. You don't care because actually you know that the end of the meal is not the best thing. There's something better that's coming, and that's tomorrow. And so it is with your work when it's shaped by a deep belief and trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You find, you find a, a way to enjoy what you have, but you always realise something better is coming. You always realise something better is coming. You see the value and the worthwhileness of what you're doing, but you always realise there is better in store. And that allows you not to be bitter, not to be afraid, not to be angry or disappointed in your work, but always to look forward with hope that something better is coming. But that is only available if our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that doorway only opens through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you. We've spent a month thinking about work, rest and retirement. The key, actually, to each of these things is to approach them with a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that says you have done all that I need and you have opened the door to life. Thank you. Thank you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for the gift of uh, eternal life that's promised because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would grant us a deep faith and trust in that future. And as that takes place, that you would reshape our hearts to love our present and live in it in light of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.